Welcome to another episode of Steve's Speed Shop, brought to you by Warranty Wise, the UK's best warranty provider. Get a quote from them today at warrantywise.co.uk. We're brought to you by Mini Sports, specialising in the classic Mini since 1967. And we're brought to you by West Coast Motorcycles. They sell Harley Davidsons, lots of them, and very lovely they are too. Find them on Facebook. At West Coast Motorcycles. Now, we have had some people with eclectic tastes when it comes to motors on this show, but I don't think we've had anyone quite like Max Wakefield. He's a friend of mine. We've known each other for about 10 years. And if it's got an engine, then he likes it, and he's probably got one. He's a great storyteller. He doesn't think he is, but he is a great storyteller. And I was really happy to get him on here as my guest on Steve Speed Shop. No, I want to know where it started. Can you can you pinpoint a conversation where you said, "Let's yeah. do let's do this." Yeah, let's was... build the world's fastest road legal car, and point to point, and let's make it let's make it with one seat and no doors and no windows and no roof. It probably was back in 98 um, when we started to, we, you know, I was racing go-karts, Ian was racing go-karts, we had reasonable cars, we were doing track days, um, I, was think, I, I was looking to get into car racing and we started to look at, um, you know, the world of, of automotive had started to look at extreme cars, cars like the Renault Spider existed which was a, 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 a two-seat open top extreme sports car no doors no windows uh no heaters of course the 340r by lotus existed then as well and so we we said this is great but but how are you gonna have a conversation with two people and two people in a car compromises the weight distribution it makes the the aero frontal area completely different as well there's a lot of compromises and actually to be able to sat next to just to be sat next to someone and having a conversation at 70, 80 mile an hour and open top, do you really have a conversation? So it was like, well, you don't really need two seats and there's a lot of compromises, so it should really be one seat. And and that was the first time, really, um, that we said, actually, it would be great if that car existed, wouldn't it? It wasn't that we said, let's go and do it then. It was, that, wouldn't it be great if that car existed? And, of course, it didn't. So for us, then, it was a question of... of we'd planted the seed that wouldn't it be great if there was this car because that would be perfect for us. We could drive it on the way into work, uh, although not necessarily as a daily commute, but we could drive it on the road. It would work well on the road, but it would work brilliant on the track. It would be better than anything that existed um, because two seats is compromised for all the reasons that I said earlier. So that was the beginnings of wouldn't it be great if there was a car with one seat. (laughs) But that wasn't the point that we said, right, let's do it, which was probably about another eight years later wow uh, and actually 10 years later because back in 98 you're dreaming you're 28 years of age you haven't got the financial wherewithal to do something so you're just wishing that someone would bring out something with one seat uh so we said i know let's go and have a chat to someone and maybe we can it'll spark some ideas so we went to see ralph Furman at van diemen down at snetterton because um, we thought the race car world creates these cars 
Uh, and every year they create the next one, which is a little bit quicker than the previous one. So therefore, their business case is all around one year's worth of production. The tooling costs are all be covered. Why don't we go and cut a deal with them and say, can we use your parts? We'll dress it in some, some killer bodywork. And that was, the, that, was, that was how we thought we'd be able to get it off the ground um, relatively low cost um, with minimal investment, etc. Went to see Ralph um, and he showed us round and it was, it was all very interesting. Um, it wasn't until 10 years later that Ian and I um, suddenly, literally one day, said to each other, and it wasn't some detailed business case and huge diligence that was done. It was we literally looked at each other and said, do you want to do this car or what? That was actually Ian's statement. And I think that was out of the fact that we'd, um, we've, had, we've had and still do have an, a very successful automotive design consultancy based in Germany, and we've been doing jobs, and it gets a bit like flipping burgers after a while, where when you've done one project, you've, you've, you've done them all, uh, particularly if it's just for the next version and the next version and the next version. And I think we were getting frustrated doing these projects that weren't really exciting us as engineers and designers. Mm. And, and, and in the end, we just said, shall we do this car or not? And, 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 and we, we both said, yeah. Um, and, and so you've got two key points there, 98, and then probably fast forward to the beginnings of 2008, 10 years later, where it was like, right, let's, let's make this happen. Yeah. When I first saw the car, it took me back to being about 12, 13 years old and buying a magazine, which I can't remember the name of. It might have been Street Machine and it might have been Custom Car, but it was one of those two. And there was an article in there about a guy called Roger Williams. Today, Roger Williams um, runs a company who builds replicas, very, very well thought of and very accurate replicas of SS100 Jaguars and C-Type Jaguars. But back then, he ran a hire company, Will Hire, and they used to sponsor the Will Hire 24-hour race at Snetterton. Mm, you just mentioned Snetterton. Yeah, yeah. Um, and it was an article about a formula car that he had made road legal. And I've, I've never forgotten that. There were these photographs of him driving it down the street with a number front number flyer. I remember. <laughs> I, 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 rem, I remember that very, that very uh, article, actually. Uh, and I think, I think the, the comments from us at the time was that it looked a bit ridiculous. Um, yes, you want performance from a single-seat car and everything that comes with it. But it has to be an object of desire. You have to look at it and want it. And that's the first thing. And, and, and clearly, taking something else and making it road legal and putting mudguards on it and indicators and headlights, it's always going to look compromised. So that's why for us it had to be a blank sheet of paper and it had to be done, albeit with very, very limited budget, much like done to the same processes that all the major OEMs that we'd worked with on, on so many different projects. Um, it had to be done properly, and that's why it started with the research phase. It started with the product positioning chart of where we were going to position the car in terms of its performance, in terms of its cost, what potential competitors there may or may not be. Um, How exciting I, is that to actually sit down with a metaphorical blank sheet of paper and design a car from scratch? Where do you start? What's the first thing you have to think about? Well, I mean, you're right. It was very exciting. And I think, I think you know, when you're, what, 35, 36 years of age, there's the naivety about all of the business constraints that, 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 that are associated with it. But that aside, at that time, 
effectively the project was like any other design project that we'd done uh, for, 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 for some of the manufacturers that we've worked with in the sense that it was a it was a design project. It wasn't a business project at that point. It was, it was let's come up with, with a design. And so you start with a, a product design specification um, and you, 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 you come up with defining what the car is all about, who it's going to appeal to, mm. and you position it somewhere in the market. And it was very interesting. The first six months, all we did was research. Um, we took a young kid who's now our longest-standing employee and he's no longer a kid, straight out of uh, Fort Time, uh, which is one of the, the recognised transportation design courses in, in Germany, and he just completed a master's degree. And we took him on, and, and we and, and we said, you're not going to do any sketching or anything for the first six months. You're just going to go out and do some research. And, and essentially, the great thing about this car is, from a design perspective, it's actually quite easy because it's all about performance. It's like a Ducati Panigale. It's just designed to look good and perform well. It's mm. not about carrying passengers. It's not about practicality. It's not about putting the kids in in golf clubs and doing all the the other jobs that we need, most people need a car to do. So for us, it was, okay, so the main attribute then is performance and cost. So in terms of, in terms of where you position it in the market, it was relatively easy to say, right, where do we think the price point is going to be for an, unhe- an unheard of brand like BAC, albeit with a recognised engineering and design background and recognised suppliers? And in terms of its performance, well, what is performance? How do you define performance? Yes, that is a great question. What is performance? I mean, you ride that Ducati Panigale, and at 100 miles an hour, you feel as though you could get off and run alongside it. You ride a Bruff Superior at 100 miles an hour, it feels like you're about to take off. You're about to take flight. So what is performance? So, so performance for us, we started to look at, let's call it the pub talk, attributes not to 60 not to 100 top speed that's your kind of top trump your top trump attributes <laughs> then we started to look at um look at obviously braking performance um and what none of that takes into consideration is things like uh, weight distribution kinematics of suspension aer- aerodynamics all of those things so the reality is is that when you put all those attributes together what have you got as a measurable as a measurable um item well it's lap time isn't it of course and what's one of the most recognised lap times to the vast majority of people in the world? It's the Top Gear Power Lap, obviously, that, that, that Stig drives. Yeah. So we dug out all these episodes of Top Gear and magazines and all the rest of it and looked at what the leaderboard looked like and where those cars were from a cost perspective <laughs> all the way up. Um, the Zonda was at the top for a long time, wasn't it? It was, yeah, it was. And it was very interesting because... What became apparent was to, when you start to get right up towards the top 10 to go a little bit faster, you're almost doubling the cost of the car all right. the way right out to yeah. your, your, your Bugatti Veyron Sport, which was right up there on a 117.6, I think, at the time. You know, and that was a 1 million, 2 million euro car. Um, yeah, you've got your Caterham, Caterham Supersports down at 30, 40 grand that are only a, a couple of seconds slower. And so, therefore, we were say it was a kind of an effort versus benefit type scenario. Um, and we targeted a particular lap time, which actually was 1 minute 16.5, which would have put us at the time when we started first design, it would have made us the quickest. Um, little did we know that when you fast forward back to, to July 2013, uh, that we'd go out, we'd do a 1 minute 14.3 and smash even our own target by, by nearly two and a half seconds. Um, so that for us, performance, lap time, dead easy, and then cost. And then you basically put the pin in the chart and say that's what we want to be and that's where we need to be. 
And then, of course, it then starts with, with, with like all design projects, it's your constraints. And the first constraints that you have to deal with are regulations, of course, um, which include safety, which include emissions, which include um, lots of different, 52 different legal requirements, certainly here in the UK. Well, um, I was going to say, when, when it came to that, surely you were thinking, this is, there's a world market for this car. I, I know you were thinking that. No, hold on, hold on. Are you going to say no? Were you just were you just thinking of the UK originally? Um, no, I mean it, it, it's it's funny when we first started it, just in our circle of mates, and I'm talking, you know, I, I, hopefully all your listeners will be able to relate to this. The kind of guys who all go with their mates to Le Mans and they all drive yeah. there and go for a week or whatever it is, Goodwood, you know, these events. We yeah, thought the there's lads. Got to, the lads, there's got to be enough lads like us, albeit with deeper pockets, yeah. who, who would want this car. And the problem is with any new product, you, you are to a certain extent shining a torch down a rabbit hole to say, hey, listen, this is something new here and, and, and think about it slightly different as opposed to a car has to have two seats and it has to have the engine in the front and it has to be configured in a conventional way that you're, that, that you're familiar with. So we thought, right, we'll... We'll look and do do sort of ten or twenty of them, and if it's if it doesn't take off, we know we'll sell them to our mates, and it'll be a great advert for what the design consultancy can do in terms of a complete car in every single area of, of design and engineering on it. Um, little did we know that if you know you fast forward to, to two thousand and twenty as a city today, you know we export to over forty one countries worldwide. I mean, it's 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 incredible. Um, yeah, but lots of lots of countries, Neil, have in place. And I don't know if the UK does. I can't imagine that we do because we seem so liberal and open when it comes to construction and use regulations. We are so lucky in this country that the things that we can ride and drive on the streets in other countries would be completely verboten. No way. Are you, no way are you driving that thing down, down the road. But here in the UK... but. The, the the mono as it is qualifies to be sold in 40, 41, 41 different countries. I know what they're doing, a lot of them. They're trying to protect their own market, whether it's Japan, particularly Japan, particularly the States, France as well. They're trying to protect their own market. I mean, I only recently found out that the only country in Europe where you couldn't buy a communist car in the 80s was Italy. The people who'd sold them all the machinery <laughs> to make the larder wouldn't allow the car to be sold in Italy because they were protectionist. So how do you how do you get past that protectionism and get into those markets like Japan and like the States? So so the the interesting thing with the regulations are is and I, and I know it's kind of this common perception that the UK you can pretty much make anything street legal. The reality is is that you can't. Um, there's 52 different regulations that we have to comply with, and they're pretty they're pretty strict, and they're effectively a subset of 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 of, of the rules which define how regular cars that we all drive on the street. So um, what are about designed. what about one offs there? If it's a one off, there are a lot less. You know, I've I've had a guest on here who, who basically made a car out of out of scrap steel and alloy from his his regular business and just got a random motorbike engine. It was a, He did a beautiful job, but they passed it for road use. Would it be a lot easier to get a one-off through that sort of thing? Well, single vehicle type approval, you can get it through that way. A lot harder if you're actually manufacturing and retailing a car, yeah? Yeah, so, so, in, so, so single vehicle type approval has changed now to individual vehicle type approval, and the, re, the reality there was that they were trying to align those regulations with everyone else in Europe, and... They struggle to do that, and God only knows what's going to happen now with Brexit. That's a, that's a different matter. Um, the good news is, is that for us as a business, um, 
we've recently launched during what we call Geneva Pool, which was after the Geneva show was 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 cancelled, uh, that we held our own launch series of launch events, and we've just launched a version of the car that has EU six D emission compliance. That's the real big one, really, that 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 prevents the sort of barrier to sale in in mainland Europe and various other different places. Um, although we export the car to 41 different countries, it is uh, track only in some of those countries, right. like Canada, for example. Yeah. Um, in the US, the car is, is imported via a, a home-built route, um, which means there are various dis- dis- dispensations. But a lot of it is, 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 to be honest with you, it's not around safety. There's no compromises there. Um, it's mainly to do with um, differences to do with emission levels. That's all it is. And, and we're EU4 at the moment, which is a standard MOT test. Um, so we're relatively clean. And, 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 and the way that the regulations are written is it's appropriate for the type of manufacturer. So the guy you referred to earlier who, who made, made the car, the one-off, the regulations are slightly different for mm. him. They're different for us as a manufacturer. There's a, there's a completely different level of responsibility and diligence that comes with that. Um, and then, of course, if you're making more than a certain number, and it's actually 300 cars a year, um, there's another set of regulations that come in. And then, again, if you're making cars in the in the thousands every week, um, then it's another set of regulations altogether. And unfortunately for those guys, you know, your, your, your Ford Motor Companies, BMW, Mercedes, they're different in America, they're different in in, uh, in China, they're different in mainland Europe. Um, it's not an easy business to be in from a regulation perspective, I have to say. Um, but you know you've just got you've just got to you've just got to look at where your biggest targets markets are, establish what you need to do to get in those markets, and, and work with the authorities to make sure that you're squeaky clean. So when you when you set out to to make the car, you it was a Colin Chapman. Uh, it's kind of a Ford engine with a Hewland gearbox on the back that used as a as a, a stress member and part of the car, and then a space frame on the front. It, the, there wasn't too much about the car that, that was revolutionary. It was kind of standard motorsport practice. And, and, you know, obviously there are all kinds of reasons for that because that way of creating a single-seater race car has been arrived at through decades of testing and innovation and racing. So why not just go with that? But was there not a danger that people would say, well, this is just it's just a racing car with number plates and lights? Well, which I, it's not. Yeah, no, I, I think I think you're absolutely right that the vehicle architecture, as we refer we refer to it, um, and, and as you rightly say, formula cars have evolved over the what last fifty, sixty, seventy years, if not longer, um, where they've experimented with with engines in various different positions: two seat, one seat engines in the front, mid engine, rear engine, and it's and it's generally accepted that the best vehicle architecture is what you'll see with any formula car, which is that the driver sits in a in a in a safety cell, as we call it. Um, the engine is is mounted uh, longitudinally behind the driver, and then the gearbox again is longitudinal be, be behind that. That keeps all the weight on the centre line of the vehicle. It gives you optimum weight distribution. It also means with the positioning of the fuel tank that the the weight balance front to rear is not adversely affected, whether or not you're running on a full tank or an empty tank, which most kind of conventional two seater GT supercars that you'll you'll see on on on, on um, you know on the main retailers. Um, their fuel tanks are in the front or they're in the side or wherever, and the car will, will, will handle completely different if you're running 100 litres of fuel or, 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 or half a tank, for example. So the vehicle architecture, as you say, there was nothing revolutionary as such other than the fact that no-one had ever done it and put it onto a road car mm. because no-one had ever done a single seat. Um, and, How hard is it to go and see 
I don't, I don't know if these people still exist, but a bank manager, I'll say the money guy. How hard is it to go and see the money guy knowing that the one thing that you're not going to compromise on is the number of people that travel in this vehicle? Because there must have been pressure. There must have been from people to say, come on, just put another seat in there. People aren't going to spend this kind of money on a single-seater vehicle. Do it in tandem if you must. Mm. Put, put the passenger behind the driver, and then it could be like a single-seater car. But the most, when you actually go and you need money and lots of it to make this thing happen, there must be pressure to make it more conventional. No, you're absolutely right. Um, um, but, it, but to be honest, the, the flip side of that is, is one of our core values is dare to be different. You know, and, and, and there are lots of good reasons why things could and should work, but people just don't have the self-belief to say, no, actually, we're going we're gonna to stick by our guns and we're going to do that. So the easy solution will be to say, no, let's just make it a two-seat. But the problem there is is you're up against the best companies in the world making some of the best cars in the world, like Porsche. I mean, the, Boxster, mm-hmm. the Boxster, for me, is, is incredible value for money for a two-seater oh, car, yeah. the build quality. Yeah. You're up against BMW, Mercedes, and you know all these people have got deep, 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 deep pockets. They're spending millions of euros a day in development. Uh, well, hundreds of millions of euros in terms of tooling. So, you know, why would you pick that? Why would you? Why would you pick that battle? Because you'll never win that war. Well, you l- know? let's look at another Northwest car company, TVR. For a long time, TVR built their success on the fact that they were the only people in the world who built a front-engined V8 rear-wheel drive car with absolutely nothing between you and the driving. No driver edge, just loads of horsepower. A big lusty V8, two seats, open top, rear wheel drive. The second, well, and that's I think Peter Wheeler, the guy who was the mm-hmm. the uh, the boss at TVR and the guy who, who brought them to great success, realised that as long as they were the only people doing that, they would be successful. The moment the big car companies thought, the moment that they were noticed, the moment that the big car companies thought. Well, there's money to be made there. Not a lot of money. There's never going to be a lot of money to be made doing that. But, yeah, we'll have a piece of that market. As soon as they come into your world, you're screwed. Because like you said, I mean, I, I, I saw a figure about how much um, Mercedes or you know, whatever we want to call them spend per day on R&D, and it was crazy. So how do you think you're going to take on those people? Again, another story. A British bike company that for years were the only people in their particular category. They were the only people that made a single-cylinder 500cc plus off-road bike, a committed off-road bike. The only people in the world who did that. And I remember they were taken over and a guy saying to me, we're going to come down and build a, a, a 250 and take on Honda. And I was like, oh, what? no, no, don't do that. It's why, Bad idea. It's why, it's why we, we internally refer to, to us saying you've got to pick your battles because you'll never win the war, right? And the war is, um, you know, you look at poor old Jensen as an example. They started, they, they tried to, to restart up in the 90s um, with a V6 engine, Ford V6 engine, two-seat car to try and have a piece of the of the tvr market um unfortunately they launched it at a time when uh, porsche were launching the boxster um you know and mercedes were launching the slk and the world had changed at that point mm-hmm. it had gone from in the 80s of oh well i've got this two-seater british sports car that's quick um relatively cheap compared to what else is out there and it might leak or break down occasionally mm-hmm. 
Um, you know, the minute Mercedes and Porsche got involved, it was I can get the build quality, I can get the reliability, and I can get the dealer network behind it. So that's why for us it was never ever let's do a two seat. It was always it was always one seat. We picked our battle because we knew we'd never win the two seat war. Well, look at Lotus. I mean, they could have had the market that the Mazda Miata forward slash MX-5s had. That was a Lotus Elan. That was a mass-produced Lotus Elan. Lotus could have had that market, but wisely they realised they couldn't compete with Mazda because Mazda's this huge company. So Lotus, Lotus really went off into a different part of the car market. I mean, under Colin Chapman, in in the later years of, of his time in charge of the company that he founded, Lotus were producing more luxurious cars, GT cars, kind of executive expresses, trying to compete with the likes of Ford and Jaguar. And for me, the new Lotus, is, well, the Elise, let's just talk about the Elise. That was going back to why Colin Chapman started the company to produce a drive a driver's car but did you when you decided to put the car into production did you think that you'd found a, po- a place in the market well we know with relation to the car but with relation to the price that no one else was in because where would you where would you stop Having like, what would the difference in price be between a kind of a fast two-door BMW and then something mid-engine? There's a big gap there for someone to fill. I think I think a couple of things. I mean, you go, you talk about Lotus and the Elise. Ian and I actually had the first two in Germany. Uh, We bought them from the first, the the same dealer, same spec uh, in theory, although they were slightly different when we got them. we had the first two in Germany, and uh, you know what appealed to us was the innovation around the aluminium chassis or tub, um, the lightweight body structure, um, the relatively straightforward engine. You know the K series engine from from Rover, which which was a great little engine. Um, There's a know. great documentary about the making of the Elise on YouTube, isn't there? I, you, you watch it and you can't believe that they allowed that company the TV company, the access that they got. Yeah, yeah. Because they were there when they were having all the problems with the bonded chassis and with the engine that they were using and with the, the conflict between um, the designer and the engineer yeah. where the des- Julian, the, the guy that designed it, would probably walk Julian up. Thompson. Yeah, yeah, Julian Thompson wanted it to look a certain way and they were like, well, no, we want to build it this way. You want to make it to look... You saw the kind of the conflicts that go on there and the compromises that have to be made. I don't know if there's a car company out there that would allow that sort of access these days. No, I mean, it, it's... I, I, yeah, I'm a big fan of Lotus. I mean, oh, yeah. um, I, as I say, Ian and I had the first two, two, two Mark 1s. Uh, I, I tuned mine, a bit more power and noisy exhaust and lowered it and, 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 and things. And, and I think it's really interesting because... The minute you start to look at a broader appeal for a vehicle, you then start to look at things like NVH packs and uh, radios and electric windows mm. and sat-nav and all the other stuff that people associate with a two-seat car. Um, having a one-seat car, there are no expectations because it doesn't exist. So the yeah. fact, the fact that, that, A, you don't need all those things, and they're not going to aid performance, they aid comfort, not performance. So I mentioned about the singularity of purpose earlier. Any design decision... Um, or, or product design specification decision came back to one thing: is it going to is it going to increase performance? No, it's not. So we're not going to do it then. 
And, and, and that's what made the decision-making process relatively simple and straightforward at the beginning. It was never, ever, let's do a two-seat, let's do a tandem, let's do that. It was always, it's going to be one seat. That, that was it right from the word go. And we didn't even discuss it twice, to be honest with you. Mm. Um, the, same, the same with the layout. And um, the, the, the rolling chassis for the car came together relatively quickly because what you simply do is, is you look at the regulations that say the driver's feet can't protrude past the actual front centre line, which is also... Um, the, the right diligent thing to do from a safety perspective. You put your mannequins in, and of course we've got plenty of experience of, of, of that through the consultancy of the different 96 percentile people and putting them in to, to understand you know, what, what adjustment you need and, and from a seating position and space-wise. Then you put a four-cylinder engine in um, longitudinally, so that defines a certain distance, and then you put the gearbox on, and before you know it, you've actually got your wheelbase already defined. Um, you then say, right, okay, what other things are there? You look at the regulations, you get everything from lighting positions to field of vision to safety belt positions, you know, on and on and on and on. And they start to define what we what we internally refer to as, as your hard points, the things you can't move, the things that absolutely have to be there. Yeah. And then, of course, then it comes It's to... almost like painting by numbers in a way. I'm sorry if that sounds no. disparaging, yeah. but it, it, it's a bit like that, isn't it? There is, you've been given, as you say, the hard points... They aren't variables. Where the genius comes in is connecting those points as cleverly as possible to create something that looks the business. Yeah, and 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 and, and as you say, um, you know, going back to the point made made earlier about about the chap who who, who effectively put number plates and mud flaps on a on a on a single seat race car and put it on the road made a big impression on me. That it did, I remember the article as well, and uh, um, it didn't have any aesthetic. Um, um, qualities as such, it didn't. You didn't see it and desire it and want it. So for us, the 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 biggest challenge was to say, right, what identity is this product going to have? It's a new product. Everything that we generally have and touch and own is an evolution of the previous version. Whether it's an iPhone, whether it's a Samsung, whether it's a computer or a car or whatever it is, it's an evolution from the previous one, and it's tweaked and made a, a bit well, different. But look, when it's look, new, yeah, look at Harley Davidson now with the live wire. It's caused such a furore because there's so much baggage, fringed and conchoed baggage, with Harley-Davidson. It goes back to 1903. It's a new product, but it says Harley-Davidson on the side, and there's a lot of people who've got a problem with that because there's all that history, and they think, no, that's not what Harley-Davidson are about. They're about something else. And, 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 and in people's heads, they imagine that that will go on forever. Ferrari, the same. Aston Martin, the same. They're almost confined by their history, mm. aren't they? Their history dictates dictates what they are allowed to do because in the minds of the public, that's why it was, it was easier for Tesla to come along and do what they did than it would be for Ford or Mercedes or Porsche to do Abs- that. Absolutely, and that's what was slightly overwhelming for us was, was a sense of... We are we are setting our own brand brand boundaries, if you like, or our own brand benchmark for sure. Um, but at the same time, there was nothing else to compare it to. So that's why when the first car appeared, it was this revolution of oh my goodness, what's this? Um, not just the fact that it was a single seat, but it's aesthetic, and that's that's where you know when if we wind the clock back well over what, 12 years when we first started the, 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 the design process was what are going to be the influences behind this totally new 
form language that we're going to create? What, what, what's it influenced by? Is it you know? Is it is it nature? Is it uh, is it fast jets? You know, what what, what is it that's that mm. superbikes? What what is it that that is influencing the aesthetic? And that was. That was really in, that was a, f- a fun time because we were looking at so many different things. Um, well, can I, at a risk of spoiling, um, we've been mates for a few years now, at risk of spoiling a friendship, can I say God and Murray's light car company and the rocket? You're saying there wasn't anything like your car. What about the rocket? What about Gordon Murray's car? Well, that car that car was designed as a as a tandem, wasn't it? There was, there was a there was a single seat version that you could get of it, and and and, and hey, um, you know, Gordon's a very intelligent bloke, and it was it was great that he'd that he'd that cars like that had existed because cars like that, the F forty from Ferrari, which the first time a major manufacturer said, "I'm just going to design a car, and it's going to have no carpet in it, no window winders, no nothing. It's just very set all about performance." Then you start to have cars like the the Lotus three forty R. Um, you had cars like the Renault Spider that I mentioned. The world was waking up to this this car that was all about performance. And of course, the crazy thing is, it's existed in the bike world, of which you know far more about it than me. Um, it's existed in the bike world for many, many, many years. If, yeah, if, but- I, if I'm at a pub and a lad turns up on his Ducati yeah. Panigale, you don't get people stood around there saying, "Where's my girlfriend going to sit? Where am I going to Where am I going to put my laptop back?" They just look at it and go, <laughs> "That's amazing. I understand it." Because I've seen it, and human beings are like that. Unfortunately, they have to be warmed up to a new product. You know, motorbikes have existed, whether it's road, whether it's on road, off road, whether it's touring, whether it's uh, cruising, whether it's uh, hot rodding, one seat, two seats, three seats with motorbikes and sidecars. So the world was is is kind of okay with that, and and you don't see a guy turn up at the at the pub or or, or ride down your road on his mountain bike and think. Where am I going to put the wife? Yeah. Where am I going to put me me, me laptop? But I, yeah, I get all that. But the bike world had, I did have some trouble with that. I had, for a long time, even super sports bikes would add. I'm just thinking about this. And I'm thinking it's almost like the vestigal tail that Homo sapiens all have. We've still got a spur of, of bone there at the bottom of our spine, which is where our tail used mm. to be. And and for a long time, super sports bikes would have something the size and thickness of a playing card <laughs> behind the main seat, and then there'd be a couple of a couple of foot pegs, foldable foot pegs, which would only be at a decent height if you're actually a marmot rather than a human being. And I had an MV Augusta Brutale, and it had this back seat, <laughs> and. Uh, a female of my acquaintance one desperately wanted to go on the back of this bike. We got to the end of the road and then she just, she was appalled that anyone, any human being, I mean, the reason she was appalled was because I'm pretty sure she thought she was in great shape and, you know, uh, uh, there was no extra, there was no extra poundage on her. She was, <laughs> she was super Lagara. Right. Okay. <laughs> and the fact that she'd found it so difficult, she was offended. She was almost saying, she was almost saying to Envy Augusta, what, are you saying I'm fat? <laughs> you know, but I was saying, no, no, it's not. It looks a bit like a seat, and they look a bit like foot pegs, but you're not actually supposed to ever sit on the back of it. It's not a real seat. For years and years, and presumably that was what we've talked about, which is that conflict and that compromise in design, where the bean counters are saying, oh, if it's strictly a one-seater, then that reduces the number of sales. 
Oh well, on that back piece, we'll just put a tiny little pad, and we'll put some we'll put some pegs on it. But the lads who buy it will know it's not really a two seater. But you didn't have to deal with that compromise. It was just you guys in the room going, "No, we're not putting a tandem seat in. We're not putting a, an extra seat in. It's going to be a one seater." And 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 that's why we we, we talked about earlier about um, any new product. There has to be a way of, of, of setting the scene almost, of preparing the market for it. And the fact that there'd been cars with no heaters, with no AC, with no doors, you have to climb in it and stand on the seat, like the Aerial Atom as an example. Um, so so we'd, we'd, the, all of that kind of lack of practicality, because it's all about performance, because mm. it drives lightweight and it's all about performance, that had almost been addressed for us in, in many ways. The big thing was, was that it's only got one seat, for us, it seemed totally logical that if you're not interested in comfort, in sat-nav, in heaters and doors and windscreens, then actually you're not really bothered about having someone else in there because the reality is is that, as I say, most open-top cars, you drive along at 56 miles an hour, 50, 60, 70 miles an hour, you can't really have a conversation because of the air that's buffeting around in there. You can have a conversation when you, when you, when you, come, to, when you come to rest. So for us... And again, this, this singularity of purpose around performance, it was never in question. It was, it's going to be a single seat. Yeah, but here's the thing, Neil. Maybe you don't want to have a conversation. Maybe the time that you spend, like I do, on a motorbike. I, I had a guy approach me wanting me to promote um, a music system, an intercom system for crash helmets. And I was like, absolutely no way. Yeah, but you could talk to the person on the back. I don't want to talk to the The last thing I want to love, you know, the greatest affection for whoever rides on the back of my bike. I don't want to talk to you. My That riding time is my time. We are super connected in this world. You know, we've all got our phone within arm's reach. We've got tablets, laptops. We get in our daily driver at a big... I got in my... My pal of mine's, uh, in fact, he's a guy that I've come to your factory with, got in his new Audi, and this screen rose up like something out of, like the monolith in, in 2001, rose up out of the dashboard, this huge screen, and, and then sort of started to give us all kinds of information. People want to get away from that. That's why they, that's why I go and ride the trail on my mountain, my trail bike, my, my mountain bike. Yeah. I don't take any device with me i want to get away from all that we call it we call it selfish solitude um and i think everybody needs that time <clears throat> um but what you what you what you then start to do is you then start to say my time um and that's why we think that driving is a hobby and certainly with autonomous vehicles and, and city centres and all the rest of it, driving will become, in our lifetime, and it's happening, it will become like any other lifestyle pursuit now, like horseback riding, you mentioned cycling, skiing, snowboarding. Um, these are all basic forms of transport that used to be a way and a mechanism for getting around, whether it's hundreds of years ago or, 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 or still are in bicycles' case. But the vast majority of people use these things to go from A to to go from, from A to A. It's not about A to B. And they I do, don't... They, they do it to enjoy themselves. Yeah, I don't get that thing that people have where it's like, oh, I'm not, I don't want to, I don't want some computer driving my car. And I'm thinking, you must live somewhere where it's really easy to get around. I live in the centre of the third, in the smack bang in the centre of the third largest conurbation in the UK. There's nearly four million people in this in Greater Manchester. <laughs> I, for most of my journeys, if the car would drive itself there, I'd be ecstatic, mate. 
Yeah. And of course, if I pop down to Barmouth or I go up to to Hawes or somewhere like that on those roads right there or through the Trafford Bowl, and which is not far from us, and which is some of the greatest driving country, not just in the UK, but in the world, I want to drive. So, you know... On and when you do it, you don't want to be you don't want to be talking to someone else or trying to talk to someone else or have that or have that um, believe it or not Neil, experience compromised. Believe it or not, Neil, even I can get sick of the sound of my own voice. I know it's I know that's a tough one, but I can. Yeah, I want some me time, and I get that on on a on a trail bike or on a on a motorbike. And I would imagine that the people let's talk about those people, hmm. the people who buy a, a BAC mono. That's what they're looking for. Who are those people? Who buys your car? Did you know who it was going to be, or have you been surprised at, at who's bought the cars? I think ultimately anything with the price point that it's got, you, you're in the high net with individual um, market instantly. Um, the guys, the guys that well, I'll say the guys, the people, um, the male. We don't, uh, we don't have a, a. We're still waiting our first female uh, customer. Um, so the male, um, it, they are successful. Um, entrepreneurs, self-made in, in, in the vast majority of cases, um, they they dare to be different. They see a lot of parallels in them as individuals and us as individuals. Have you got a lot of creatives? A lot of, rather than sort of making it in uh, selling ball bearings, have you got filmmakers and musicians and DJs and stuff like that? Yeah, we've got we've got we've got some of those. Yeah, because you need. So, I mean, I was going to say you need to be a you need to be a bit of an ex. I was going to say you need to be a bit of an extrovert because you're on display in in, in a mono. But of course, if you put a helmet on, which a lot of people <laughs> do, so that's where the selfish solitude comes from, isn't it? You, you can be you can, you can be, hide away. Yeah, you can. World. So no, we've got we've got some famous people, and they won't mind me saying who they who they are. They're quite open about their ownership. So. Uh, you know, Joel Zimmerman, aka Dead Mouse, who's a, who's an incredible electronic digital musician, and uh, he's Canadian, a, a isn't he? Friend. He is Canadian, so he yeah. can only drive it on a track. Well, and that's what he does. Um, he drives it in in in, um, in in Europe when he comes over here touring. Um, he's got one. Um, he's got he's got another one on order actually. The the, the new monoirs. Gordon Ramsay's got one. Um, so Gordon, you know, it's very flattering that, that people like Gordon, who've got a nice car collection of your LaFerraris and your, your 918 Porsches, you know, you, you, you kind of, your poster, your poster cars that, that we're in that circle. And, and, and that's, that's... How many cars does a BSA mono customer own? Your average customer probably owns about eight cars, I would say. Um, and, 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 and that isn't that crazy when you start thinking yeah. about the right tool for the right job if you're if you're a family man uh, as most of these guys are they've got the suv to do all the family stuff chuck all the kids in and, and, and school runs and go and see the grandparents at the weekend that, that kind of thing then they've probably got a, a car for the wife that, that, that she will that she will like that might be a in, in lots of cases that'll be a cabriolet of some description maybe a ferrari california or something like that then they'll have um, something that they can travel on business and be be quite discreet. Like, a, what's a, that? A dig at Ferrari saying that the California Spider is a woman's car? <laughs> no, it's a, it's a great car. Actually. It's a great um, car. But but yeah, so they'll have like a like an M5 or something like that, or something that's quite underst- you know some understated performance saloon car. And then of course they'll they'll be either you know McLaren, Ferrari, Lamborghini, um, Porsche, multiple owners of those mm. cars. Um, and, uh, and 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 they'll already be engaged in high performance driving. They'll do lifestyle events, um, and they'll have, you know they'll be doing track days, and they'll realise that 
you know, going through a set of brakes or a set of tyres um, and, and having, in some cases, very, very, very rare cars on track that you're really rolling the dice and, and hoping for the best, you know, whether that you don't damage the thing or that if you do, it's, it's, it's not going to cost you an, an arm and a leg. So, you know, when they see the mono, firstly, they're attracted by its physical appearance um, and then they ask what it is and then they find out its performance and that's all the time there's these mental checkbox and they realize how much quicker it's going to be than their current car and we're not just talking one or two seconds here we're talking 10 15 seconds a lap you know compared to to to, to some very very well you know uh, recognized and followed uh, supercar brands so you know they they they're pragmatic people it's the right tool for the right job um you know whether that's you know, a uh, uh, Mercedes Maybach or a, or an S-Class Mercedes to be driven around the country for to, to various appointments or indeed flying in private jets in some cases. For them, if it can mean that they can have more efficient use of their time and a better use of their time and have more fun doing it and actually it costs less and less money to run it, it's a no-brainer. And mm. that generally is what drives the decision-making process for... For the, for, for the vast majority of owners. How do you get past the four-cylinder thing? Because there's a, there is a perception out there that a car that costs as much as a mono... How much does a mono cost these days, Neil? So, so the, base, the base price of the current car is 145950 right. So, $145,950. And I bet, th- I bet there's not a single one that goes out without some extras or modification. Because each car is bespoke, really, isn't it? Every, every car is bespoke. But well, I- a lot of manufacturers will say, oh, yeah, our cars are bespoke. But how many of them have, like a mono does a steering wheel which is moulded to the grip of the customer. That's bespoke, isn't and, it? And a seat that's moulded to the shape yeah, of the driver. exactly. And, and, so, yeah. but my point being, cars that cost that much have more than four cylinders. How do you get past that? Was, was there a temptation to put more cylinders in? I think um, it's an interesting question, that, because the market, uh, I think that that question applies... To far, old far people, more, no. That's what no, you're going to say. No, no, I think it's it, I, an old-fashioned notion. No, not at all. No, no. I think, I think, um, I, I think, ten years ago, I think that was a big deal, um, particularly in America. You know, it needs a V. You know, why has it not got a V8? Why has it not got a V6? But then, when you come back to this, this one measurable, which is performance, how much brake horsepower is this engine knocking out, and what does it weigh? Right. Mono R engine, which is the new car we, which we launched at Goodwood last year, is the highest specific output, normally aspirated engine, in the world, right? So it's 343 brake horsepower from a 2.5 litre engine. That's 137 brake horsepower yes, per litre. Yes, but, but, so, now hold on a second. And it only weighs 100 kilo. But that engine, in a, in a different form, appears in a people carrier. How do you get past that? I think... Um, well, I think I think ultimately, um, I mean, it's 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 a it's a fair question, <laughs> a challenging one. Um, it's all around, I think, the performance that it delivers um, around its weight and the cost of the car. Mm. I think. Um, I mean, it's very interesting now when you look at what Koenigsegg have just launched and their four seat car um, that's that's costing. You know, several hundreds of thousands of pounds. I think it's five or six hundred grand. I think it is. It may even be may even be eight hundred. They're all their uh, their new car. That's guess guess what? It's got a four cylinder engine in it, mm. albeit an incredible incredible technology. So I think the world now with with emissions, 
with what we're doing to the planet as human beings, with, with everything that's going on, people are getting past that. Hey, man, it's got to be a big, well, big it, V8 in the back of there. Neil, I think... Demand that, 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 that price point. I'm playing devil's advocate, not very convincingly, because, no, you know, I mean, I think that... We'll, we'll mention Lotus again. Water pump engine, you know. A, a water Coventry Climax water pump engine, you know, and took on the world. So, But there's, there's been, traditionally, two is better than one, Four is better than two, six. You know, the, mm. it, it, it was an arms race, really, because you know, up to a V twelve, and everyone, every petrol head at some point should own a V twelve. I think I was very, very close to buying a black Daimler with a red leather interior, and there were two reasons that I wanted to buy that car. One, because it looked amazing; it looked like a gangster's car. And two, it had this V12, which was almost silent. But the problem for me was I drove it. And I realised that it was a heavy, creaky, old-fashioned car that was going to use an enormous amount of fuel, but still not give me hardly anything back in terms of sort of driving excitement or, or driving engagement. It was just for wafting around in, and I thought I'm not quite at the wafting around period yet. So I don't know. I might never. I might never own a V12 because today a V12 doesn't mean what it used to. I mean, I recently uh, drove the 812 Superfast Ferrari, and I think that's going to be the last naturally aspirated front engined or front mid engined, whatever they're calling it, mm. uh, Ferrari of its kind because. The world's changing, and guys my age and older should be wary of taking notions that we've had for a long time into the post-2020 future because those things don't apply anymore, mate. You can sell a car with a four-cylinder. Look at the new Mustang with a four-cylinder engine. Yeah, absolutely. No, I think, I think, I think the point's of, it's a very interesting one. Uh, I think what it boils down to are, are two or three things. One is an education, and two is communication. Um, and that's obviously done through through our marketing material and, and, and our salespeople. So so ultimately, when you start talking about, yes, the, the engine's from a people carrier, um, the block is about all that is kept, and then the block is machined, you know, the bore is increased, the stroke, the stroke is reduced. I mean, you, you're talking the bare, 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 bare essentials of, of yeah. an engine that, yes, has all the usages uh, in more mundane circumstances. But when people realise that, Almost every single component on the engine is bespoke, including the block, actually, once it's been machined, it therefore is also bespoke. Um, completely different head or forged internals, billet crank, uh, dry sump, uh, completely revised inlet system, um, valve I'm, train, everything. I'm, I'm salivating. It, it, well, it, 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 it goes from being... It's going to uh, get in the equipment. We need to, we yeah. need to mop up here. It goes, it goes from being something that, that, that has a mundane application to this thing that is, 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 is that bespoke, that, it, that, that it's just this amazing thing. And then you look at the power output. And as I mentioned earlier about education and communication, yes, you can have a V6. Average weight of a V6 is about 150 kilos. 
right? That's a base, base engine with none of the other stuff that comes on it. The, the, the closer to 180, actually. And what horsepower is a V6 going to knock out? Well, I'm talking naturally aspirated now. So you start looking at an aspirate, you know, that you want something of around 300 to 350 brake horsepower from a naturally aspirated V6, and you've got to look very far and wide, mm. and then you look at what it weighs, and you say, well, actually, for 98 to 100 kilos, I can get a longitudinal engine that's very narrow, by the way, so I haven't got this V6 that is, that, is, that is making the car wider at the rear, which destroys aerodynamics and increases drag. All of these factors that actually, when you think these things through, the logical solution is to have this inline four cylinder, you could argue inline six cylinder maybe. Um, but the inline four, it's, um, it is an incredible engine. I mean, it revs to nine grand. And to put it into perspective in terms of the achievement of, of, of what we've done with our, our engine partner, Mount Tune. Um, Why did you move to Mount Tune, by the way? Well, I... We felt when we launched the car, because no one had heard of BAC, that, that, that there needed to be this comfort in the brands that we'd sourced for the major components on the car. Um, and the engine coming from Cosworth, Cosworth were still involved in Formula One at that time, and the Cosworth name, of course, is incredible, um, and the history and the heritage. Um, we felt that we needed the engines from Cosworth. Um, we needed to be able to make that statement. Mount Tune have rose to fame in the last sort of, 10, 15 years, particularly with Ford Motor Company um, being their preferred uh, and approved and warranted uh, engine tuner for anything from your Ford Focus to your Ford Fiesta, all the way right up to Ken Block's uh, 600 horsepower rallycross engine all to, to, to touring cars, to you name it, they're, they're active in road and race. Um, Dave Mountain, personal friend of mine, uh, who owns Mountain Racing, and uh, when we moved from the 2.3 to the 2.5, um, which was when we went from um, normal cable throttle to electronic throttle and also to VVT to get the extra mid-range torque and the extra power and the, and, and the torque that the 2.5 has. We felt that that was time that we it, the market was right then. People would walk up to the car, and it was brilliant, actually, um, at Goodwood. We were load, unloading the car one year, and I heard some, I heard some lads walk up along and say, oh, wow, there's the, there's the BAC Mono. Whereas a couple of years before, people come along and say, wow, what's this? Oh, it's called BAC, the engine's from Cosworth, and mm. it's called the Mono. Ah, right, I get it. So once, once the brand was established, it didn't really matter that we needed this named brand. It's great that Mountain have the relationship that they do with Ford, and it's great that we, that we have a great relationship with them. We've built nearly 80 cars with their engines in, um, and indeed the new, en the new cars moving forward. Um, so people see the car now and say, wow, it's the mono and it's made yeah. by BAC. Oh, and it has a 2.5 engine and it's a collaboration between BAC and Mountain, which it, which it, which it has been, which is great. I've seen so many start-up uh, companies in the car and bike world come a cropper because they've decided they absolutely must have their own engine. And uh, if there's people... And, and you look at the kind of the successes and the iconic cars which have... Like the Cobra, probably the best example. Carroll Shelby didn't make his own engine. <laughs> he realised he just wanted he wanted the reliability and the horsepower and the affordability of that that big Ford V8. So he went and got it. And and I admire those who who make their own engine and their own transmission. But again, the history of of the car and bike business is littered with the broken minds and bodies of men who thought I'm going to make my own engine. <laughs> well, and of course, of course, the question for the future is, is, is you know, what is going to be powering our 
our well, vehicles, you know, in the future. But yeah, you're right. The, 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 I said earlier about, you know, picking your battle because you'll never win the war. Why would you want to go away and design yourself an own engine? You know, there are some incredible manufacturers out there who make incredible mm. value for money, power units and vehicles, actually. And, uh, you know, we're, we're massive advocates for what Ford Motor Company do. They, they, um, the, the Juratec engine, which was the 2.3, was originally based on, and indeed the 2.5. Um, very, very robust engines, very reliable. Um, the new Mono, which we launched at Geneva Pool earlier this year, which has got the EU60 emission compliant engine. To put that in perspective, though, that emission level is, you know, to the man in the street, they, they, they think that petrol, petrol engines are these horrible, dirty things you've got to have electric. But the reality is, is that the cleanliness of some of these engines now is, is, is incredible. And when EU7 comes in, that's a different ballpark altogether. If you can take a I wouldn't say an off-the-shelf engine. That's the wrong thing to say. That's, you, you take a very good foundation and build on it, put our dry sump on it, change the intake system, et cetera, mm. et cetera, et cetera. Let's just say not upset the combustion chamber because that really is where the magic happens from an emission perspective. Um, you know, our new engine has got um, the new the new engine. It's a 2.3-litre, um, and it's 332 brake horsepower, you know, um, and it and it and it's... It's and it's as I say, emission compliant. Um, well, that's not it's, Neil. It's, that's not a lot. You're in a world where Detroit is pumping out Camaros and Mustangs and the new Corvette, which I think is a is a game changer. Mm-hmm. That that car has been a real wake up call to the European low volume exotic car manufacturers because look, GM's building something that's just as fast as your super exotic European mid engine car. And they're selling it for a fraction of the price. So that's a wake-up call, boys. But it's it's interesting to hear you, you talk about that as a lot of horsepower. It doesn't sound that impressive. It's it, And you're absolutely right. It was one spot of time. I, I went on the launch of the Dodge Viper, and what the most senior British journalist who was there, he asked, he inquired, he just turned up, he wasn't that bothered, he thought people didn't really want to hear about it was kind of this would have been when did the viper come out uh, mid 90s when a, a, a car journalist thought what i'm in the business of is telling people whether the new five door ford is better than the peugeot the nissan or the toyota this is just a bit of fun on the periphery so we hadn't found too much about the car in advance so he went over to talk to somebody and he turned around when he found out it had 400 brake horsepower and said Lads, 400 brake horsepower, mark the day because we'll never see its like again. And I remember driving a Hellcat and thinking, wow, 25 years ago, people were saying 400 brake horsepower out of Detroit was the most we'd ever see. And look at, look at what they're doing now. But if, I know what you're going to say. You're going to say, well, it's only 340 brake horsepower. But the car weighs as much as an empty uh, McDonald's fries carton. So it's. Where, <laughs> uh, well, we spoke about earlier, didn't we, about uh, about education and communication, right? And that's where power to weight comes in. And of course, motorcycles, uh, you know, wrote the book on that, didn't they? Uh, so you know, for us, yes, you're right. 332 brake horsepower to someone who's who's used to reading about, a, a, and indeed our customers, a McLaren uh, with six or seven hundred horsepower, or a thousand, or, or, or a, thousand a thousand horsepower. horsepower. Exactly. I mean, it, it's becoming an arms race now for yeah. those guys because their vehicles weigh one and a half, two tons. Right. Uh, that's why the battle that they've chosen to pick is about top speed. If it's in the Koenigsegg's case, or if it's or or, 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 or the Nurburgring, for example, and that's where which has become. 
has become the standard. And it's so weird that the Nürburgring would become the standard because it is so unrepresentative of the sort of driving that they're going to be doing. It, it, it is. It is. It, having said that, though, it's a good. It's a good benchmark if you need a benchmark. And I think. I think as a performance vehicle for your, your you know, your, your GT2 uh, Porsches and your and your Ferraris and, and 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 Lambos and goodness knows what else. I think it's a good benchmark for that level of performance car because the kind so of we, person who's buying it that they, they need. They need. It, it's, it's. It's. You've got cost. You've got naught to sixty, naught to hundred. There's only so much you can do out of a four-wheel drive system and two point two, two point three, two point four. It's never ever going to set the world on fire. I've in terms got of a, a difference. A difference of speed. At there. this point, I've got to butt in and say something that a German said to me the other day when the Nurburgring was mentioned, and he said, "Oh yeah, that place that Brits go on holiday to crash their car." <laughs> which for a German is pretty damn funny. And if anybody thinks that that is not the truth, take yourself to YouTube where you can watch endless hours of Brits piling their British registered cars. There seems to be two corners on the whole of that enormous green hell. Where, Pete, where Brits always crash for some reason. And I think it's because of Camber. I don't think... That, that's my theory. I think in the UK, unlike a lot of places in the world, we tend not to build Camber into our roads, which is weird because they drain better. And when confronted by Camber on a road, it's not so much the severity of the corner or the angle, it's the Camber. It catches Brits out because they're not used to it. I mean, it's an incredible place, the, the, the Nürburgring. Um... Do you think it is a good test? of a car's performance in the real world it depends what the real world is <laughs> if, if it's a perform if it's a high if it's a high performance car then yes if if we're talking about um the new golf or the new focus then probably not um but if you're certainly talking about the next next gt3 gt2 porsche or the next friday lamborghini or whatever then absolutely it is because it's about braking it's about cornering it's got some some areas where you've got wide open throttle for 20 30 seconds so right. yes it is about yeah. about mid-range torque it's about everything there's every single type of corner i mean you've you've, you've driven it you, you know what it's like um you talk about the accidents that happen there a couple of things there are some bank corners and if you talk to anyone who's ever raced on an oval, they'll tell you one thing that happens when you go sideways. You don't opposite lock it. You turn down. You don't turn. Yeah. You don't yeah. opposite lock because the minute the car corrects itself, it will recover and flip the other way, which is why most of the accidents occur. The other thing with the Nurburgring as well is, is there's three areas where you transition uh, through a gap in, a tr- in the trees over a crest. Um, and it and you think ah this is where it goes right and it goes left well yes it does but with different levels of severity so when you've driven it the first time you're super cautious and then as you start to get a little bit more familiar with it you get in between <laughs> that five and ten laps where you think ah I know this bit now it's not the bit of the circuit that you didn't I've, that you thought it was I've done that on the Alaman wall yeah I've done that on the Alaman super cautious at first and then that point that point where you think I know the course and I forgot where I was, thought I was somebody somewhere else, and I ended up taking someone's driveway about two-thirds of the way around this right-hander because there was, I was, there was no more lean left on the bike and there was no more ability left in, in Steve Berry. So I just sat the bike up and sh- went straight up somebody's drive. Thank God it was a really long driveway. <laughs> and I then was almost in a situation where I had to explain, because the people whose drive had gone up saw me hurtling up their drive and immediately st- they were, they were watching TV. <laughs> they were watching TV, and all of a sudden, there's a Honda CBR 600 flying on their driveway. But I think everyone who lives on the Isle of Man is used to um, the sort of 
riding particularly and driving that isn't commonplace anywhere else on the well, not too many other places on the planet. You took your monos to the it's the biggest gathering of monos on the Isle of Man, wasn't it? It was, yeah, yeah. That it's, must have been a it's a mega place. Um I mean we got introduced uh six years ago, um at the International Festival for Business in Liverpool to the to the ministers for tourism and, and, and economic development from the island and they said, Yeah, come over, bring you know, we'll we'll welcome you with open arms. Little did we know that they were happy to close roads for us and and, <laughs> and, 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 and do what we do what we do over there. Um, but yeah, well, I think twelve monos we had over there. Um, people came from all around the world: Hong Kong, Japan, um, Poland, um, Germany, um, uh, Belgium, Holland. I mean, it was amazing to get these customers together. And, and, and I've got to say, in terms of what sticks in my mind as experiences, we talk about the car having one seat. Um, and what I'd say to any, to you, or indeed any of your listeners, is it is nice to enjoy some me time. Um, whether that's skiing, snowboarding, cycling, running, swimming, um, you know, horseback riding. But it's also great to enjoy it with your mates too. And there's nothing better, I mean nothing better, uh, nothing better you can certainly do with your clothes on at least, uh, where you're in a mono and there's other people in monos. And we were, we were coming out of Ramsey, and you know the section that I'm going to talk yep. about where you come out of Ramsey and you've got the air pins and it starts to open up and you go across the mountain and, you know, we were doing, I mean, it's an open stretch road and there's no speed limit, but doing 165 miles an hour across the top of there in a mono with three or four other guys all doing the same. And then you get to the top uh, and you all look at each other and you all breathe a sigh of relief and you like, turn around, let's go and have a, let's go and park up and, uh, and go and have a beer and chat about it. Just an amazing thing. So, you know, the, the experience of driving a mono, uh, whether it's on the road or on the track, is, is so, so unique. Uh, sitting in the middle of the car, having nothing in the way, no A pillars, no B pillars, no rear view mirror, no sun, no roof. Um, you know, you can drive it with or without a helmet and just have sunglasses on it. Um, but you sit in the middle of the road in, in terms of your lane. You don't sit off to one side near the white line as you do uh, if, you, if, you, if you're in the UK. So that instantly is different. The interaction is very much like a bike eye in terms of you and the environment mm. and the machine. But then to be able to do it, as I imagine it's like with a bike, I've never been on a bike or ridden one. But, well, you've been to uh, the TT with me. I've been to the TT with you, yeah. Seeing uh, your face, when it, what, an, what an experience that was, because yeah. we, we went over together and uh, we had a very sketchy flight getting <laughs> over to the Isle of Man that day. Uh, lots of people were getting turned back. We managed to land just about. And then seeing Neil's face when um, the three riders, I think it was Michael Dunlop, John McGuinness and Ian Hutchinson, or was it Guy Martin? Guy Martin. It might have been, yeah. Yeah, all came round together, by, which doesn't happen. They'd, they'd set off. It was the senior. It was the big race of the week. And they arrived at Craig Nabar. You could have thrown a blanket over the three of them. Mm. And to see your face when you realised just how fast the three of them were going was a picture because I, I, I've, I've only re- really been there with people. I, actually, I took my partner. She, she went for the first time. And I thought, and this was after I'd been with you and you'd had your mind blown by, by the speeds that the bikes were travelling at. And I thought, right, what's going to do it for her? Bottom of Bray Hill. So we went to the bottom. There's a Methodist church at the bottom of Bray Hill. And they make, they, they have like a little trestle table and they set, they have an, a tea urn and little fairy cakes and all that. It's fantastic. And they've got nice toilets. Right. right? Ah. So I thought, that's where she'll want to go. Because it's always a bit of a problem where you were. Uh, where you access relief on the course. Most people just could be under bush, but that's not really a, a modus operandi. So we went to the Methodist Church in the bottom of Braille, and I think John McGuinness was first off. 
And of course, at the bottom of Braille, they're doing in this on the on the big bikes. They're doing one seventy five, one eighty. They're more or less flat out. Well, no, the flat out. This will be straight at two hundred, but about one eighty, something like that. And she couldn't look. And she's been around motorcycles all her life, but she'd never seen anything like that. That, that was never just, that was the thing like for that. me when 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 we went. It it. I mean, in the most admiration for the riders and indeed the, the passengers in the motorbike and sidecar situation as well. They are not us. They're real. They're mean, crazy. <laughs> uh, but, but for me, it was the... You feel for the ridering if, if uh, you know, if anything were to go wrong and then you look at where people are standing as well. And, and I've, mm. you know, I've been a fan of motorsport for many years. I've been on rallies all over the world and... I've seen the underside of cars in the middle of in the middle of Finnish forests, and you think, well, we kind of stood in a slightly iffy iffy place here, and you think, yeah. well, what if something did go wrong? And I know that's the whole thing about the event, but in some ways, is this this appeal of we definitely felt alive that day, and I've never, you know, I'm thinking about it now. It's making the air stand up on me on my arms because, we, you know, there's a lot that that makes me. It's got to be something really extreme that makes me feel worried about a where we're stood and b thinking jesus these riders are going at, abs- at breakneck speed and i just couldn't believe it i just couldn't believe it and also to where someone come out of a corner and know that they're going to be traveling at about 70 80 mile an hour wide open throttle on a motorcycle knowing how quick those things accelerate and then hearing them on wide open throttle as they come out of craig nabar and just heading down that that straight with kinks in it as they head out down towards Douglas. And, for me, and it's just flat out, flat out, flat out, flat we, out. We mustn't talk about motorcycles too much, but but for me, the, when we talk about the noise, it's that noise that comes off the mountain, a strange sort of swirling, I'm going to say something really pretentious now. It, it reminds me like when you hear bagpipes, if, if, if you're in, in, in Edinburgh, something like that, and they're playing in the castle, and you hear that, I think they call it like a skirling of pipes, yeah. and you hear that nice like mm, coming yeah. off the mountain, and you think, they're coming, yeah. they are coming. And the best bit for me was being with you at TT Virgin, knowing <laughs> this is going to proper blow his mind. And you and were it just, did. it was so great that you yeah. were so open to it and to see something that was it, it's like I suppose it's like being being at the TT. It's like being at I went to went to Cheltenham for the Gold Cup, and I thought, oh, this is similar. There are seventy five thousand people here gathered for something that's unique. If you go to the right right near you guys, very close to your factory, if you go to the Grand National at mm-hmm. Entry Racecourse, it is unique, and it's it's a mecca for people who are utterly passionate and enthusiastic. And wedded to this event, this event is, it's got history, it's got heritage, and it is unique. And people realise that, and that's why they want to keep it. And that's what, what I say when people say, what is it about the TT, it's so dangerous, all these things happen. And I go, you, you need to go, and you need to talk to people, you need to meet people. And they are different. Those people, there's something about that event. There's nothing like it. You can go to Silverstone, you can go to Monza, you can go to Laguna Seca, to Suzuka, and you see motorcycles racing. You, it'd be great, but it ain't the TT. No, it's uh, for anyone who's not been. It's it, it it's and even if you're not a motorsport fan, actually, uh, just to, just to just to just to take it all in it's just amazing but bikes ain't for everybody and i think mm. that's what you've cleverly and there's nothing wrong with that i think that, that's what you guys have cleverly worked out so you're giving people and i think i think that's what your cars are rather than 
race cars on the road. So many journalists who write about the BSC Mono or broadcast about it or whatever will use that term race car on the road. I think you've got a four-wheel superbike. I, I think your car has more in common with a Ducati Panigale or a bike like that than it has with a racing car. Because one of the other things that people say about the Mono is how friendly, no matter, despite how quick it is, and I think Top Gear did you a massive favour when it battered around their track and, and annihilated everything else. And Jeremy, Jeremy gave the car a great review as well when, when he first drove it on the show. But a racing car can be, and you know this, a racing car can be a hot, horrible, brutal environment to be in. I drove a Group N car once on a track day, and I went out in it three or four times, and every time I got out of it, it was like there was just a relief. And I said, how long was I out there? They said, you're out there for 20 minutes. I said, it felt like about three hours. The car, the heat inside the car, the noise and the, the vibe, it was just bludgeoned your senses. And one of the things that people say about the Mono is what a friendly car it is to drive. It's set up to make you feel like you're a good, a great driver. Absolutely. So we, we, we refer to it as accessible performance. So everything from the, the, the clutch pedal efforts to the amount of braking force you need to put into the brake pedal, steering efforts, how the car starts to communicate when it starts to give up the grip, how it communicates when it recovers the grip. All of these things are done in a nice, benign, rounded way. Because... We, we're in, I say we're in the entertainment business, we're not in the car business. People want to get out that car with a smile on their face. They want to go and tell their mates, hey, I took Cascades in fourth gear flat out or I did 170 down the back straight at Silverstone or whatever. And it's a bit like saying I did the such and such a trail on my mountain bike or I came down a black run when I was skiing. People want to talk about it in a positive way. They don't want to be saying, I've just got out this car and I've been scared to death and I'm shaking and I never want to get back in it. They want to get out being proud of what they've achieved having had fun being exhilarated and saying right i want i want more i want to get back in it and that's that's kind of my job really as a director of product development is to make sure the car drives as well as it looks and that it entertains people when they drive it and it's accessible for anyone with any driving skill you know you don't we've got a guy who's 74 years of age uh, years of age he lives in south wales goes out on a sunday morning for a nice drive he doesn't drive too spirited um, and he and he loves the car. He absolutely loves the car. He's actually got one of Gordon Gordon's cars as well. Funny enough, amongst <laughs> many others. Um, but you know, we've got people of all ages, all abilities. You're not going to uh, forget me mentioning the rocket, are you? No, hey, no bloody it's, Steve it's, Perry. It's a nice. It's a, it's a nice. <laughs> it, it, as I say, cars like that did us a favour. Um, How does a tiny operation in Liverpool, very skilled, very experienced, very knowledgeable, tiny operation in Liverpool? Produce cars that have a build quality equivalent to Mercedes or Porsche or Toyota. The cars are exquisitely bolted together. I've been round and round and round them looking for a self-tapping screw, looking for a rough finish, looking for a pop rivet. It doesn't exist. The cars... I hope you'll take this as a compliment. Mm. They look like Mercedes build them. How is that possible? Is it magic? <laughs> it's not. No, I mean it. It, it happens. Is it because of your past experience? It's because of, of what our you past do? experience, yeah. and 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 also um, 
you know, again, I spoke about our brand values. One of our values is 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 uh, is that we strive for perfection, not that we're perfectionists, because because there's, there's slightly negative connotations with that occasionally. But we're always continuously trying to improve. Um, listen to everyone; everyone's got an opinion, um, and you know, we're our biggest critics. You know, if 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 if, um, and also it's down to good design. You know, when you're designing the parts with the knowledge of. Uh, working in close collaboration with the supplier to understand what his limitations are, what his tolerances can be, um, you know, pushing the boundaries and making sure that it's, it can be the best that it can be. Then in terms of when the car goes together, it's kind of logical that it's going to go together well because you, that's the way you've designed it. Of course, you need good people to bolt it together and they've got the same level of, of, of attention to detail as the innovation team who've designed it in the first place. So ultimately it's about, you know, um, we're constantly looking at ourselves and what can we do better across every area of our business, not just the way the car is, 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 is bolted together or indeed performance, whether it's customer experience, whether it's um, you know, career development plans for our employees, the suppliers that we're working with. You know, how can we always improve? And no one wrote the book on, on, on how you start a car company. Uh, you know, and despite the fact that I turned 50 years of age this year and, and my brother's 53, and yes, we've been in the business for 25 years, 30 years in some cases, um, we're still learning all the time and we always listen and uh, we always take criticism in a positive way. Last question, because we're running out of time, we could talk to you. We, we could both literally talk all day, as I'm sure that the people that are listening would be aware. Last question. Um, when's the BAC SUV coming out? Because everybody else is doing it. There's a Lamborghini one, there's an Aston Martin one. And will it be a one-seater? Well, um, we... <laughs> well, we, Steve. Oh. Ne- never, no, never say never. Say never certainly on, on mul- a car of multiple seats. That, that That's for sure. But we will definitely say never on, a, on an SUV. That's, that's not a battle that we'd pick because we would definitely never win that war with everyone else who's doing that. And there's, there's plenty of other brilliant car companies around who are doing mega jobs. That's it for another edition of Steve's Speed Shop. If you want to listen to it again, don't worry, there's always the podcast, or you can listen to it here on Fab. There's a repeat on Saturday. See you next week.